the subject, the fall of Babylon, it, it could be something that, that we look at with a little sadness, or it could be something we look at with excitement. And I'd have to admit that both of them are, are good emotions. Um, one, because what we're going to look at is, is people and the reality of, of loss and destruction, including people, means that there should be a fair bit of sadness that's associated with this subject. But at, at the same time, we're looking at the fall of uh, something that, that Satan has designed, something that has, has targeted God's kingdom. And for that, I think we should be joyful that God is dealing with the problem. To start out, I want to tell you a story about Saddam Hussein. You might remember back in 1987, anybody remember Saddam's um, palace in Babylon that he was building? In the, the bricks, as he was trying to restore some of the, the areas around Babylon and the bricks that he put in, uh, he put an inscription, just like Nebuchadnezzar had. Uh, put this inscription that says something about how wonderful Saddam Hussein was and how he's um, restoring Babylon and just this whole idea that, that uh, the, the Babylon and the Iraqi people were uh, really the cradle of civilization and would continue to have a civilization for millennia um, under his rule. So he, he builds this beautiful attempt at replicating what the Nebuchadnezzar's temple was like. But if you went to Babylon today, it's just about 60 miles, uh, I believe, south of um, the, uh, what's the big city in, in uh, Baghdad? Thank you. I was looking for it on my notes and couldn't see it there, but Baghdad is, is the main place, but just about 60 miles south, you'll find Babylon, and it's just ruins today. And even the place that Saddam built is ruins. Uh, it, it's halfway built, and things have been ripped out of it. It's, it's a mess. And, and if, if you had been Saddam Hussein, uh, you might have wanted to read something that was written about 600 B.C., just a few years after Nebuchadnezzar had built the hanging gardens in Babylon in the beginning. The weeping prophet Jeremiah, as he's sometimes known, is, uh, said this in Jeremiah 50 verse 3, For out of the north a nation comes up against her, which shall make her land desolate, and no one shall dwell therein. They shall move, they shall depart, both man and beast. So he's saying Babylon's going to be destroyed, people are going to leave, they're not going to come back. Uh, verse 13, she shall not be inhabited, but sh she shall be wholly desolate. When you think of desolate, that, that's no, no life, no, uh, no people inhabiting it. And that's exactly what it is today. It's desolate. It's broken down. Most everything in Babylon is just uh, piles of rubble uh, that, that even the, the Iraqi people are kind of moving in among and it, it's, uh, it's nothing. It, it's, it's just rubble. Now, at the same time that you read this uh, about Jeremiah's prophecy that Babylon would be destroyed and it wouldn't come back and nobody would live in it and, uh, and it'd just be rubble, you also have to think about Revelation that says that Babylon is going to be a power at the end of time. How do you reconcile these two thoughts? Read in Revelation 14, 8 with me, and you can uh, 
you can see. Uh, another angel followed saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that great city, because she made, has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. It, it, it's like Babylon's back. Obviously, it's not back literally, because you can go to Babylon today and it's not there. So what is John saying? The main idea is John is talking to a group of people who knew the Old Testament really well. So when John writes about Babylon, it's going to trigger in their heads, oh, I, I know that name. And, and everything that's written about Babylon in Jeremiah and Isaiah and Daniel would come back to their minds. And they'd recognize the, the spiritual issue because Babylon was a nation that fought, what, what, did they fight for God's people or against God's people? They fought against God's people. And so they would, it would trigger that memory, and they would start to recognize the themes and the connections. So for our benefit of making some parallel connections, let's go back and look at some stories about Babylon, specifically a story about Belshazzar. Nebuchadnezzar built Babylon. It was fantastic. Uh, it was a beautiful city. And, uh, and then his... Uh, daughter married a general, and the general ended up becoming king, um, uh, iteration or so after uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And then that general's son, the daughter, uh, the the son of the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar, or the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, um, he became the regent or the king in Babylon, while um, his father went to another place because he liked to worship the moon and the Babylonians thought that was weird. And so he's in Babylon and he's second in, in, the, in the nation and while he's fooling around, quite literally, um, the Medo-Persian Empire brings their army in. They take out his dad in that city that, and, and the army that he had with him and they come in and they, they swoop in under the cover of night, so to speak. And while, ba while Belshazzar is throwing a party, he meets his fate. And let's just read the story because it gives us some valuable connections with Revelation. Belshazzar, the king, made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple. Keep in mind that in the Hebrew context, father and grandfather and great-great-great-great-great-grandfather is all the same word. We, they didn't have a different differentiation. Um, so it, it's really his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple, which, he had, <coughs> which had been in Jerusalem that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. So Nebuchadnezzar had attacked Jerusalem, sacked the temple, but he took all kinds of valuable gold and silver vessels. Uh, you might realize although it's not necessarily stated very often, but the sanctuary and temple services that the Jews had, they had to have shovels and pitchforks and knives and actual forks and, and cups and, and bowls and all kinds of silverware to, to do the kinds of things that they were doing in the temple. And Nebuchadnezzar loved that. He took all of it with him, all the precious metal stuff, and, and he put it in his treasury. Belshazzar sees that stuff, and he knows what's going on. He knew what was going on with Nebuchadnezzar back uh, at that time, and he's aware of the significance of these things. And, and so then it says, they, then they brought the gold vessels that he had 
that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. This is blasphemy. He's using the utensils that God made holy in the use of his worship service, and, and Belshazzar is using them to worship gods of, made of gold and silver and stone and whatever else. Blasphemous. And, and in the same moment, in the same hour that this is happening, a finger on this disembodied, uh, apparently disembodied hand starts writing on the wall. And it, it's, uh, it says that the hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. The Bible says that Nebuchadnezzar was so terrified that his knees knocked together and his loins were loosed. That's a, a, a nice euphemism for he had a bowel movement in his pants. The guy was not excited about life. He was scared and and, and when, he, when he thought of that, or when he saw that and he's scared, he's like, what do I do? And he asks people, like, what, what does this mean? And even though it was a language that was understandable, anybody who was uh, a, in, in the commerce business in Babylon would have understood that this is dealing with numbering and scales and things like this. The words weren't that uncommon. It was just, it was confusing. What does it mean for us in this context right now, and, and nobody could, could say. But the queen mother, well, she knew, she knew Daniel. Daniel had interpreted dreams for her father, and so she suggested that they call Daniel in for some help. It's important to note, I think, that Daniel wasn't at the party. Tell something about his character. So they call Daniel, and Daniel comes in, and start reading again in verse 18, Daniel 5:18. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father a kingdom and majesty, glory and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. When whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. He set up, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne. And they took his glory from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beasts, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all of this. And you have lifted yourself up for the Lord, against the Lord. You've lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. I love the comparison that he's about to make. All these gods that don't have any knowledge, they don't have any senses, they're dead and dumb. But then he says, and the God who holds your breath what is that? We talked about breath before. His very life, the God who holds your breath, your life in his hand, and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. God is saying to Belshazzar, I cannot hold you guiltless for this great apostasy, this great blasphemy that you've done. 
there's something that has to happen here. It's interesting to think about how God deals with nations. Was Babylon a good place? Babylon wasn't a great place. Babylon was, was the place, it's the, the country that conquers God's people. Um, it was not a good place. And yet, in the heart of Babylon, at the head of Babylon, is this king, Nebuchadnezzar, that God loves and pursues. His pride and arrogance caused some consequence to happen, but in the end, God, uh, he, he worked it out so that Nebuchadnezzar's heart was humbled and he could be saved. Isn't that a beautiful thought? There's a problem with the system of Babylon, and ultimately God brings it down. And yet there's something about God. He pursues people wherever they are. He loves them. Daniel 5.25, <clears throat> Daniel's in, in now going to interpret what he sees. He looks on the wall and he reads the, the words, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Eupharsin, and he begins to interpret. He says, Mene, has, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. He was judged. He didn't end up on the right side of this judgment, this weighing, this balances. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the, and the Persians. And then the Bible says in Daniel 5.30, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. God says, Babylon is fallen, and guess what happens? Babylon falls. When, when God chooses to do justice, justice happens. I think that's a, a beautiful, hopeful thought. Verse 31, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. What caused the downfall of Babylon? What caused the downfall of Babylon is that a group of people decided in their pride that they would do something that God had expressly forbidden. The use of his implements that were meant to be holy and used for his worship was was uh, made to serve the doctrines of men and the, the commands of demons. They took what was designed for holy use and they used it in a most unholy way. And when we look at the book of Revelation, we see the same Babylon and many of the same parallels that, that we find in Daniel and the story of literal Babylon. So the Revelation Babylon isn't a literal Babylon, it's, it's got some uh, spiritual component, um, but it's significant that God calls it Babylon. Revelation 14, 7, we've read this a few times. Fear God, give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of waters. I'm bringing this up because when we talk about Babylon, we're talking about something that's, that, that's uh, using a holy thing and, and making it its use unholy, right? It's, it's swapping God's design for man's. And, uh, and one of the most significant things in Revelation is this gospel message, this everlasting gospel that goes to all the world, a huge significant message. And in the heart of that message is this phrase, worship him who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and the springs of waters. And that, that's not just an accidental phrase, it's a quote. Whenever you see quotation marks in a book in, in the modern English language, 
typically there's a notation beside it, and, and you get a reference. If this had a reference, what would it be? What would the reference be for Revelation 14 and the last part of verse 7? It, it would be the fourth commandment. It would be Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, where God defines him, him, his authority to give a law like the Ten Commandments. Uh, he defines that authority as his creatorship, and he, he puts that stamp in the Sabbath. And so we find this fourth commandment uh, message as a key part of the gospel message that's supposed to go to all the world at the end of time. And it's connected with an idea that comes right after it. Babylon has fallen. And we read that in, in verse 8 of Revelation 14. <clears throat> now, we've got to look at these, these two women in Revelation in, in order to talk about Babylon uh, because one of these women is called Babylon and the other one is a huge contrast the first woman in Revelation that we read about is Revelation 12.1. The verse says, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. This is God's people throughout all time. And, and we could go into all the metaphors, the twelve stars being the twelve tribes of Israel and the twelve apostles, and, the, and, and later they become the twelve foundations of the New Jerusalem. But we could talk about the the uh, standing um, on the, the, uh, the moon and clothed with the sun, the idea of the righteousness of Christ. And um, we could look at all these different metaphors, and they're really cool, but it's, just, it's good enough to just say this is God's people represented through all time. From the time of Israel fleeing from Babylon, uh, going back to Jerusalem, uh, to the time of the apostles leading the, the, the diaspora, they call it the exodus out of Jerusalem because of persecution where the Christians went to all the world. And, and, and you could even trace those followers of Christ, uh, whether it was uh, the Waldenses or the, the Anabaptists or uh, the, the um, Great Awakening in the early 1800s, you can trace God's movement of people where people were kept going back to God's word and relying on him wholeheartedly. That's this woman in Revelation 12.1, God's people. And then the alternative is in Revelation 17. And, and this one, she gets lots of descriptions. Let's start in verse 1. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls come and came and talked with me, saying to me, Come and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. With whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Are you paying attention to some of the parallels? You've already seen the word blasphemy. Um, there's going to be more. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand... Uh, what kind of a cup? A golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, and here's another parallel, mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, and when I saw her I marveled with great amazement. 
probably not a good amazement, one of those wow, I never imagined kind of amazements. The question has to, to be answered, who is this woman? If the woman in Revelation 12 represents God's people throughout all time, what does the woman in Revelation 17 represent? Daniel spoke about a system that would be cast to the ground. And, and that's who this woman is talking about. This woman, a, a religious system at the end of time. She's impure and she's called Babylon. Let's just think about Babel for a minute. Babylon comes from the word Babel. And if you go back in the story, back to Genesis, uh, right after the flood, I believe Genesis 9 and 10, and 11, you'll find that there's this group of people who decide to make a city, even though God tells them to go and spread out among the earth. They make a city, and in defiance of God, they build a tower just in case God wants to flood the earth again. Did God promise not to flood the earth again? Yeah, he gave a rainbow, and so they refused to believe God. They were not acting in faith. Instead, they were acting in their own desire to preserve themselves. They build a tower, and God sees this and recognizes that it's going to be a bad deal for, for humanity. And so he, he confuses their languages, and that's where we get the word Babel. Babel means confusion, and that's kind of what, why we, we use the word whenever we uh, listen to a uh, you know, six- or eight-month-old talking. We say they're babbling because <laughs> they're incomprehensible. You can't understand what's, what's going on. If you were to compare that, because this woman in Revelation 17 is called Babylon, if you were to compare that idea of confusion with modern-day religion, would you agree that, uh, that we're dealing with a confused world? Even if you look at Christianity, and it's important to note that, that Satan, he likes to offer a counter that's close to the true. The counterfeit it looks like the real thing. And so when we look at, at Satan's alternative to the pure woman of Revelation 12, the harlot of Revelation 17 is going to look pretty similar. It's going to look like it follows Christ. So we're not talking about the confusion of, of paganism or the confusion of, of um, Hinduism or any of the, these other religions. We're talking about a confusion inside the Christian world. If you were looking from outside, if you were somebody who'd never seen Christianity, and you were just to, to walk up and talk to somebody and, you know, say, hi, you're a Christian, now what happens after you die? Well, one person would say one thing, another person would say another. Um, what's this hell idea? Well, you might have five different ideas on what hell is. or um, You could go on. Baptism, there's probably a dozen different ways that people think about baptism in the Christian world. And, and you might start to wonder if you've never been involved in the Christian environment at all, you might start to wonder, do they really know what they're talking about? Are they reading the same book? What's going on here? And in fact, some Christians are at the point of saying, you know, it can't really be understood. Everybody's got their own idea because, you know, that's kind of how the Bible's designed. And they've just They've just been satisfied with saying, Jesus loves me, this I know, and, that, and that's the beginning and end of their Christian experience. Let's consider Revelation verse, chapter 17, verse 2. It says that Babylon made the world drunk with its wine. Jesus 
when he was being tempted in the wilderness, he had some bread, right? Well, he didn't have any bread, but he was asked to make bread. And, and what did he say? How did he respond to, to the devil who was tempting him? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He, he speaks of revelation as something that sustains. But later he says, I am the bread of life. Eat me. He's saying the words that God gives, the revelation of God, the word of God is bread. It's food. And, uh, and, and in the sanctuary service, there is these beautiful ideas of food offerings and drink offerings. And, and it's, it's connected with a spiritual thing. So when we're talking about wine, we're not talking about literal alcoholic wine. We're talking about something spiritual, something, well, doctrinal, really, truth about who God is. Because Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, the life. I'm the bread. Um, and, and so these ideas are really closely connected. So when you see that the world is drunk with the wine of Babylon, what we're talking about is that it's, it's been uh, polluted with the false ideas of Babylon. In verse 5, Babylon is called the mother of harlots. And this is an interesting, interesting idea. It suggests that, I mean, if you're a mother, what do you have? You have children, right? But specifically here, mother of harlots, and a harlot is a woman, so we're talking about a, a mother of, of, of women, uh, several other women. So a woman in Revelation is a what? Revelation 12, we find it's God's people, so it's a, a church. Um, Revelation 17, we find it's this religious system, and again, a church. And so the daughters must be they must be churches as well, right? Revelation chapter 16, verses 13 to 14 uh, says, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth to the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. There's something about this harlot that... Uh, the Bible indicates spiritualism is, is closely connected. And if you've got the mother and the daughters, and they have some similarities, you're probably going to see the same theology, the same doctrines in both of those groups of, of, um, of organizations, the, the mother and the daughters saying similar things. And this idea of spiritualism it's, it's really easy to move through Christianity today because of the teaching on death. What happens when a person dies? There's lots of confusion about that, but the Bible is clear. In Ecclesiastes 9.5, it says the dead know nothing. Once you die, you're asleep, you're, you're done. Um, until the resurrection, there's no memory in you. There's no praising the Lord. Nothing is happening. You're in the ground. It's clear from the Bible, but um, the the Roman Catholic Church picked up ideas about death from paganism and brought that into Christianity. And is that a teaching, the immortal soul and the eternal punishment in hell? Is that a teaching that we find throughout Christianity? Yeah, you've got the Roman Catholic Church teaching it, the Mother Church, um, she calls herself. And, uh, and, and pretty much every other Protestant church teaches that as well. It's a central tenet, in fact, of the theology because in, in the Catholic Church, you have the 
the prayers made to who? To the saints. And who are the saints but dead Christians? And so the idea that we can pray to the dead is fairly prominent in Christianity. I've, I've heard not just Catholics but many Protestants who uh, pray to their deceased uh, loved one believing that they're in heaven and can somehow interact with God in a more intimate way than they can. Of course, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that the dead don't know anything and they don't praise God and that Jesus is our advocate and we can go to the Father's throne in confidence just as we are. There's confusion on this subject. Um, Revelation 14, 9 says, a third angel followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or his hand, and then it goes on to say that it's going to drink of the wine of the wrath of God. And what's, what's this idea? I was thinking about if wine is doctrine, theology kind of stuff, what's going on here? Well, the wine of the wrath of God is closely connected with the everlasting gospel. This is Revelation 14, right after the everlasting gospel is introduced. That everlasting gospel includes judgment. And that, that judgment is the, res the result, that's what comes um, of that sin and rebellion. Just like Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Belshazzar, experienced judgment because of his blasphemy, the blasphemy of Babylon at the end of time is going to receive judgment as well. <coughs> and, and we've looked at, in the past, we've looked at this idea of the mark of the beast. It's the mark of the authority of this, of this uh, institution. And, uh, and we, we looked at that and we found that there is a contrast between the worship of the beast and the image of the beast and the worship of God. And the contrast was made with the mark of the beast and the seal of God. The seal of God being the, the law in our hearts and our minds, um, stamped with the authority of God in the Seventh-day Sabbath, his creatorship. And the mark of the authority of the Catholic Church well, it's better just to let them tell you. Uh, this is from Carl Keating's book, Catholicism and Fundamentalism, a contrast that he's making, uh, and it reads on page 38, fundamentalists meet for worship on Sunday, yet there is no evidence in the Bible that corporate worship was to be made on Sundays. He's pointing out a flaw in their logic. You fundamentalists claim to go by the Bible, so why don't you? That's kind of his question. And he goes on, the Jewish Sabbath or day of rest was, of course, Saturday. It was the Catholic Church that decided Sunday should be the day of worship for Christians in honor of the resurrection. And, and so they, make, they set themselves up to be the authority to replace the commandments of God with the doctrines of men. And, and this isn't, like I said earlier, it's not intended to be critical. Um, God loves the people even in bad systems. He loved Nebuchadnezzar right in the middle of that. Um, in the uh, a paper written by Cardinal Gibbons, he says, reason and sense demand the acceptance of one or the other of these two alternatives, either Protestantism and the keeping holy of Saturday, or Catholicity and the keeping holy of Sunday. Compromise is impossible. It's interesting that, he's, that he makes this contrast between Catholicity and Protestantism, Sunday and Sabbath, when Saturday's Sabbath specifically, um, when most Protestant churches today don't keep a Saturday Sabbath. Um, he's making a contrast between, I think what he suggests is true Protestantism, if you're going to 
fully keep the Bible's um, word, then you need to do that. Otherwise, you're just part of us. You're part of our, our little family, the mother church and her daughters. It's a clear choice, either the Bible or tradition. You can't. You can't mix them. Somehow this teaching of Sunday has replaced Sabbath and God's teaching. Babylon and the churches that are teaching this error are contradicting God's word and setting up a false system in its place. Exodus 20, verse 8, God says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And Revelation 13, 8 says, All the world wondered after the beast. God asks us, Remember, remember me, your creator, and yet the world wonders after the beast. One scholar described it this way, since Saturday, not Sunday, is specified in the Bible, it's, isn't it curious that non-Catholics who profess to take their religion directly from the Bible and not from the church observe Sunday instead of Saturday? Yes, of course it is inconsistent, but the change was made about 15 centuries before Protestantism was born. They have continued the custom even though it rests upon the authority of the Catholic Church and not upon an explicit text in the Bible. That observance remains as a reminder of the mother church from which the non-Catholic sects broke away, like a boy running away from home, but still carrying in his pocket a picture of his mother or a lock of her hair. That was written by Reverend John A. O'Brien, The Faith of Millions. Whether it's the doctrine of the immortal soul that's directly in contradiction to the Bible, or the doctrine of uh, the, the church's tradition of keeping Sunday instead of Sabbath, um, overturning God's law, or in this case, uh, Reverend John A. O'Brien adds another point, I think, to this, uh, to this problem of apostasy and blasphemy. When the priest, quoting from him, when the priest announces the tremendous words of consecration, he reaches up, this is speaking of the Eucharist in blessing the bread and the wine. When the priest announces the tremendous words of consecration, he reaches up into the heavens, brings Christ down from his throne and places him upon our altar to be offered up again as the victim for the sins of man. What does the Bible say about Jesus' sacrifice? Thousands of times for all? No, it says once for all. It is a power greater than that of saints and angels, greater than that of seraphim and cherubim. Indeed, it is greater even than the power of the Virgin Mary. While the Blessed Virgin was the human agency by which Christ became incarnate a single time, the priest brings Christ down from heaven and renders him present on our altar as the eternal victim for the sins of man not once but a thousand times. The priest speaks, and lo, Christ, the eternal and omnipotent God, bows his head in humble obedience to the priest's command. I, I'm not sure, honestly, how you come to those conclusions, except you have no basis of authority in the Bible. Because God word, God's word is directly opposed to these ideas of how God's church works. But that's a claim made by the mother church, the church that's seeking to lead all men and women down at the end of the time. All the world wonders after the beast. God's plan, though, is to call his people out of Babylon. We spoke about the fall of Babylon, and if you follow Babylon, you're going to participate in that fall. 
God doesn't want people in that mix. He really would rather nobody be in that mix. And so he says to his people, come out. We'll read in Revelation 14, 8. Uh, the statement was, Babylon has fallen, has fallen that great city because she's made all the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. God calls people out. Revelation 18, uh, we'll read just a few verses at the beginning. It says, After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. Same thing we read in Revelation 14. And has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison of every foul spirit, and a cage of every unclean and hated bird. Uh, that idea of spiritualism is present there. And then it says, For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. This is really strong statements that God is making in opposition to this apostate religious system. And then he says in verse 4, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. It's a definite call. God's not, God's not saying, um, hang out in there and see if you can reform that system. God's saying, come out. Don't stay there because the result is going to be you're going to share in her sins and in her punishment. <clears throat> Does this mean that, that uh, there are actually people from, of God in all these false systems of worship? Yeah, it does. In fact, it might be plausible to suggest that the majority of God's people are in these false systems of worship right now and that, that God is calling them, come out. Come out. Don't stay. Come out. There's a, uh, some beautiful passages in the Bible. Jesus talks about his sheep. We'll get to that in a second. He says, you love me. He looks at these people that are maybe falsely sincere but, but, but believing falsehood. He looks at them, he says, you love me, you're working for me, you're sharing my love in the community. Um, I, now I want to I take you to the next step. I want to show you who I really am. I want to clear your mind of the confusion of Babylon. And I want to give you hope and peace and a future. I want to prepare you for eternity. Come out of her, my people. 1 Kings 18.21, there's a story of a, a prophet. His name is Elijah. And Elijah lived at a time when a, a king named Ahab had married uh, a woman named Jezebel. Now, the, the people had not rejected God, but Jezebel was a worshiper of Baal. And so she began leading the court in Baal worship and, and wealthy people and, you know, kind of started trickling down through the nation where people were were um, worshiping Baal. And in fact, it got to the point where if you worshiped God, because there were some people who did, you'd have to flee. You, you might be imprisoned, you might be killed for the worship of God. But there were people who believed in God. And, uh, and so Elijah came and he challenged the people and there was no rain. And uh, in the end, he's on the top of a mountain and he calls them uh, to make a choice. And it's either between um, worshiping God or worshiping Baal. And, and he says, Let, let's let the gods tell us who's real. 
the God who answers by fire in a sacrifice will be the one that we should worship. And they agreed, and the prophets of Baal put up this altar and sacrifice and prayed, and nothing happened. Nothing happened. Nothing happened. All day long, nothing happened. Elijah builds his altar. Elijah prepares his sacrifice, pours lots of water on it, prays. Fire comes down and consumes that offering. That's, that's what fire from God does. It consumes. We talked about that earlier. The destruction is complete uh, and perfect. And so Elijah is standing there on the mountain. God has revealed himself by fire, and he calls the people to a choice. He says in 1 Kings 18, 21, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. Make a choice. Don't, don't falter back and forth thinking, well, I, you know, I've got friends back here, um, or I, I'd, uh, it's more convenient for my work or whatever. Make a choice and say yes completely to God. There's a woman, 62-year-old, bright little woman from Great Britain, who decided that she was going to take a vacation, and she had scheduled it in Granada, Spain. She got on the plane, and she was so excited that she was going to Spain and Granada, and she was telling the, the seatmate how she was excited to go to Spain, and the, the lady looked at her and was like, uh, if you're going to Spain, you're on the wrong plane, because this plane is going to Grenada in the Caribbean. Well, the uh, stewardess got involved, and there is some smiles about the mix-up. Uh, she, she got to Grenada, and they got redirected, and she ended up in Granada, Spain, where her vacation was planned. Sincere. She was so sincere, thought she was doing the right thing, but she was doing absolutely the wrong thing. You know, some people think that sincerity, sincerity is the, the thing that matters most. And God loves a sincere heart. But you can be sincerely wrong. There was people that might have thought that it was a good idea to be with Belshazzar in his, in his party room, uh, drinking from those vessels, doing what everybody else was doing. But following the crowd out of sincerity uh, does not a follower of God make. God invites us to follow him with all of our hearts. In John 10, verse 14, he says, I'm the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. They know me too. If you hear the voice of God calling, he's saying, you're my sheep, you're my people, come out of her, is his message. In John 10, 27, he says, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. And his voice is saying what? Come out of her, my people. There are some of us who aren't in Babylon anymore, but we have Babylon in our hearts. You might remember the story of the... Um, his name just left me, Lot. I was going to say Job. No, his name is Lot. And it, he and his family were supposed to leave Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah were going to be destroyed. It was going to, going to be the end of them. And God invited them out. In fact, 
he grabbed them by the hands, his angels did, and they dragged the family out because Lot was kind of dragging his feet. And, and so they, they headed for safety for the mountains. That was where they were supposed to be going. But Lot's wife was, she was missing Sodom and Gomorrah. Her heart was still back there in Babylon, in, in Sodom and Gomorrah at least. And, and so she turned around. And she is memorialized for all of us to consider as a pillar of salt, a, an image that illustrates the end of those who cling to Babylon. It's just not worth it. God offers life, everlasting life. We have no, there's no value in clinging to Sodom and Gomorrah and clinging to Babylon. It's just, there's no reason for us to look back. Even if our life was there. We're, we're, when they left Babylon, was the, were the Israelites making sacrifices after the exile there? Their friends were in Babylon, weren't they? They had worshipped in Babylon. Their jobs, their livelihood in Babylon. But God still called them out because he knew it was a dangerous place for them, that spiritually it was going to be unhealthy for them. Revelation 14, 12 says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And, and God wants each of you to be in that group. We are nearly there, nearly home. Jesus is coming soon. And he wants, he wants everybody to be there. He's, he says that he is not willing that anyone should die, but that all should come to everlasting life. And he just says, if you can hear me, then I'm calling you. You're my people. If you can hear me, come out. And, and the, the contrast we're given is to follow God in his word versus follow man. And God says, don't do the follow man stuff. It never works. Whether it's yourself or a pope, it never works. Follow me. And then uh, in the end, he'll come and, and we'll be able to, to raise our hands in joy and say, this is our God, we have waited for him and he will save us. And he will look down with joy and he will say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. 